So why did we do this? Why did we put all this work into this, talk to all these people, hours of editing and refining and all that sort of stuff? Why did we do this? I wanted to tell my story in the hopes that I inspire people to listen to their bodies. If something doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. Get to the doctor, get checked out, make sure you get the help that you need. I also wanted to inform people who might be going through this and myself included because I was kind of in shock the entire time. You know, I, I didn't really have time to ask questions to my doctor or the doctors because my mind was just going in a hundred different directions. So I think this is a great opportunity to get the reassurance and the information from all of these medical professionals that we spoke to so we could find out what can we do to prevent this? How can we live with this? What steps can be taken to get those who maybe don't have access to help, the help that they need, the medicines they need, the care? It's all about raising awareness. Yeah, awareness. This strange pressure built in my chest. Six more months, this could have been a real heart attack. Her guidelines, she should be receiving high-dose statins. We just need to make sure her cholesterol is under control. Stents are a widely accepted medical procedure for cardiovascular care. Bill, the most amazing thing about what happened to you, you're not sick. You're going to be fine. People believe that when they have heart issues, they almost feel guilty about it. Like, oh, if I only ate better, if I only exercise more, this wouldn't have happened to me. And they don't want to talk about it. It's this shame factor. Hi, I'm Dr. Suzanne Steinbaum. I'm a preventive cardiologist with a focus on women and cardiovascular disease. I've been a national volunteer medical spokesperson for Go Red for Women through the American Heart Association since it started about 20 years ago. And I am the CEO and founder of a technology company that is a software platform for women's cardiovascular health, wellness, and prevention called Adesso. But think about it. When someone gets cancer, they're survivors. They survived. It's, it's this heroic thing. And heart disease we just don't talk about it the same. So for the past three episodes, we've focused on Fitz's heart health. And I'm sure that there are plenty of people that have related to it that are listening in the audience. But Fitz is far from the only person. We've rattled off so many stats about the millions of people that are impacted by heart disease or various cardiovascular ailments around this country. That extends to listeners, that extends to people that we know in our own lives, that extends to people that are on this podcast, me, myself, Jack O'Brien have dealt with my own share of cardiovascular issues since the age of eight. I was diagnosed with supraventricular tachycardia, which is an extra electrical charger on your heart that can basically send your heart into arrhythmia and very high, high-paced beats, sometimes without provocation, sometimes it's through physical exertion. In my case, I was just sitting around as an eight-year-old and suddenly I was at 180 beats a minute. My face went white and I was very nauseous and my parents brought me to the emergency room and I got an IV treatment and they were able to bring my heart rate back down to normal. And from that time on, I was diagnosed with SVT. I had to live with it all throughout my childhood and adolescence. I wasn't allowed to play physical sports, so that limited me to tennis, golf, and quiz bowl, pretty much the only things that I could excel at. 
And I had to take a beta blocker starting at the age of nine, which kept my heart atenolol, 25 milligrams, kept my heart artificially in check, but I would still have episodes. I remember we used to keep a log of the amount of times that my heart would spike and I would have these occurrences of arrhythmia. And I think in the year 2004, it was almost 50 times. The option for an ablation was always on the table, but as they started to tick down from 49 to 30 to 20, it became less and less of an issue and just something that I was cognizant of. MM&M, in conjunction with Cardiology Advisor, a Haymarket Media publication, presents Me and My Heart. Me and My Heart. Me and My Heart. Me and My Heart. Episode 4. For those that are unfamiliar with a cardiac catheter ablation, you are unconscious for the entire procedure, and what they do is they insert a catheter through your groin, and they feed it up into your heart, and then using radio frequency are able to burn out the section of the heart that they don't want uh, working in this case, which would be the electrical charger. My senior year of high school in February of 2013, I remember the date, it was February 12th, so it's fitting that it happened during heart month. I was playing basketball during study hall when I should have been studying, and I took a wrong step and I immediately felt my heart jump in quickly with a fast rhythm. And it was one of those things that it had happened a bunch of times. I knew to flip into a handstand, thought the rush of blood would fix the problem. And I thought it did. But then after going to the locker room, changing, going back to study hall, it just felt like it was just kept going. And I knew it didn't feel right. So I went to the nurse. She put a cuff on me to get my heart rate. And it was very, very high. And she said, you should probably go to the doctors to go to the emergency room. So I called my mom pick me up from school. We drive to the pediatrician's office. They do the same thing and the cuff couldn't even read it because it was going so fast. So we went to the emergency room. As Fitz had referred to earlier in the series, nothing gets you to the front of the line quite like saying that you have a heart problem. So all of a sudden I'm in the emergency room and I've got nurses and doctors looking at me. They finally were able to get a read and my heart rate was at 220 beats a minute which is not good for those of you that haven't picked up along the course of the series. What is it supposed to be? What is the average? Your arresting heart rate should be between about 50 and 100. Yeah, that's what I thought. So literally can feel my heart beating out of my chest. And they say that their option is to do a cardiovert, which for those that may not be familiar is when they bring out the paddles and they go clear and they shock your chest. Had to sign a waiver. My mom had to leave the room. Very scary scene. Zapped it and it worked. But while it did work, they had said, this is not something that you ever want to rely on because it gets less and less effectual as time goes on. So they recommended that we schedule for an ablation, which again had always been on the table, but we had never acted on it. And we had one scheduled for March of 2013. Is that a one-time procedure? So an ablation is supposed to be a one-time procedure. Currently, it's about a 90% success rate. And at that time in 2013, it was still above like 80% success. And unfortunately, it wasn't for me. My cardiologist at St. Peter's Hospital in the Albany area had tried and said it was on a very difficult side of the heart, didn't necessarily work out. And so I left that procedure with a damaged electrical current, but not one that was what they would deem as successful. If they wanted to, and they test it, if they wanted to get my heart out of rhythm, it could happen. So that was frustrating. Go to college. College break comes in December of 2013, two days before Christmas. Go back to the same hospital, same cardiologist. They try again. Does not work. 
So in one calendar year, I've had a cardiovert and two cardiac catheter ablations. And so it didn't work on both occasions. It only damaged, but because of the location of where it was in the heart, did not work. So still remained on the medicine, still told no sports, caffeine, cocaine, the three, (laughs) the, the three true vices in my life and just went back to living life. Never really considered having another ablation because I've been told that it was damaged. Sure, I would happen occasionally where I would exert myself to a point where it would happen, but I was able to get back in rhythm. I was on my medication, didn't think much of it. Moved to New York City in the spring of 2021 and with the encouraging of my now fiance, went to find a cardiologist here and they said, hey, you have this. We have a really good cardiologist we recommend. That would be Dr. Larry Chinitz at NYU Langone. Had a procedure scheduled for July of 2021, and it was successful. Came out of the procedure, and the doctor said that the technology had come a long way since 2013, and it was a success, which obviously made me so happy because this has been something I dealt with since I was eight, and suddenly I'm sitting there at 26. Yeah, that's a long time. It's a long time. To deal with that, oh my. I meet with the doctor at the end of July, still very much a success. They said there was no delta wave, which is what they look for in the EKG to symbolize that arrhythmia. And so by all stretch, I was good to go until I got COVID. I got the delta variant in August of 2021, couldn't smell, had a congestion that never seemed to end. And I thought that was just the extent of it until a couple weeks later, I go on a run And I come back from my run shower and my fiance and I were going to see Shakespeare in the park and sitting down, I was at about 110, 120 beats a minute, which again is slightly over what it's supposed to be, but it was never coming down. And I went back to my, you know, routine, my tricks. I tried to flip myself into a handstand, tried to strain and exert and try and do all that. Nothing doing. We walked across the park to Lenox Hill Hospital. I remember pulling up Monday Night Football on my phone so I could watch that in the emergency room. And they went in and tried to figure out what these palpitations were and whether, you know, whether it was related to my arrhythmia. They said it wasn't related to that, but I told them I just had COVID and they'd had a number of patients come in there that had COVID-related palpitations. And they held me overnight. And I can tell you that at that time, I had just left a job and joined another, but my health insurance hadn't kicked in. And so I had to making about $70,000 a year living in the biggest city in the country, apply for charity care because I wasn't going to be able to afford $18,000 for an overnight stay in the hospital, which again, I think underscores, this is at the end of 2021, I think underscores the frustrating, complicated nature for people experiencing the healthcare system, even those of us that are all too familiar with how it operates and what you should be looking for and asking. That's insane. Yeah. The stress on top of health issues. Do you see, this is the point mm-hmm. of the podcast too. Like a lot of us have health issues that we have to deal with, but then you throw the insurance thing on top of it. Yep. You throw everything else on top of it. Mm-hmm. It just makes for a difficult situation. Yeah. Bill and I were able to get care through a number of different means, self-advocacy, having other people, both on the provider and the employer side, pushing for us to get the care that we needed. That's not always the case for people. And I think that's an important lesson that we need to remember from this entire series is that these issues are not 
unique by any stretch and it does take a certain amount of gumption and conviction and as some of our guests have noted a little bit of luck too to be able to get over these obstacles and get the care that you need when we think of management of heart disease i feel like all we see are in our head are people in white coats but we can't remember the collaborative effort that goes into like long-term management. Chen Fang is a clinical strategist, team lead, and manager at Cardiology Advisor, a Haymarket media publication. Even when we talk about lifestyle, it's not just individual patient choices that can make a big change. We have to think about like, do they need a nutritionist? Do, do they need a physical therapist? Are there things preventing them from moving or are there other factors that prevent them from eating well. You can think about like social determinants of health in patients in rural areas. If they're unable to, you know, get to their doctor's appointments to get their refill for the medication, perhaps that's a bigger problem than like what they're eating that morning. Identifying all the factors that go into patient care is much more complicated than like, okay, you need a prescription for X, Y, and Z. You need to like, and you have to think about diet. And you have to think about exercise. What other resources does a patient need? What other help do they need? Do they have a support system? Do they have the luxury of just not going to work that morning because of an emergency without fear of losing their job? Can someone look after their kids if they have to step away? I, I think sometimes we think about medicine too in a, too micro of a way when you're just looking at, okay, I don't feel well, I need to get care, and then I have to do this to feel better, when really it's it's so four-dimensional because as you mentioned like life is complicated the care that you and i received is similar because we are similar yeah but if we had you know black patients hispanic patients asian patients women Women, patients they are all going through things that are entirely different than what the standard white man patient goes through the statistic around women and heart disease is one in three women are dying of heart disease more than all cancers combined. I have been saying that same statistic for almost 20 years. And three years ago, I thought I'm gonna stay in this system and continue to be part of the problem, or I was gonna leave and create a solution. And that personally is what made me launch my technology company. So what you're talking to me about is my life's work you know that's my passion how do we change the narrative it's important to recognize especially for our audience which are primarily medical marketers and communicators to understand that patients especially patients of color especially women patients go through different challenges and face different biases as it relates to their care which contribute to their mistrust and impact their outcomes at the end of the day. I worked in Newark, New Jersey for a bit, um, working with a heart failure population and the extents that we would go to make sure that, you know, does a patient have a ride to get here next week? Or if we, if it's very important for them to monitor their weight, can they afford a scale? Mm-hmm. And if not, how can we give one to them? Where will we get the money? And as an institution, there's like entire dedicated teams to handle things like this, to make sure that they can afford their medication. Are there special pharmacies that they can go to where their medication can be subsidized? Um, And if not, how can we make one? There's entire teams dedicated to address social determinants of health because it's, it's so obvious when we live in a place like New York where resources are everywhere, theoretically. But even if you just step out a little bit into more rural areas, If someone has a disability, they can't drive, but buses are few and far between. 
How did they get to their appointments? I've had patients who would wait until the last minute to go to the emergency room to get an IV drip of Lasix because they couldn't afford a month's supply of Lasix ever. But they could have time to call an ambulance to take them to the hospital once a month for a Lasix drip and then not have to pay for the ambulance ride. And that's just something happening in Newark, New Jersey. It's such a complicated issue to tackle because it's it's all like where the money comes from. Yeah. And I don't know how we can solve that. Fortunately, because heart attacks happen so frequently, there are a lot of cath labs, for instance, in the United States, even in rural areas, and there are referral programs and transfer programs and that kind of thing to stop patients who get heart attacks. But what I worry the most about, so those patients will get, get treated, but you kind of want to treat people earlier. And so what I worry the most about are those folks who aren't just getting basic control of things like blood pressure, their cholesterol, mm-hmm. and just being told that, you know, you know, maybe, you know, eating fast food is it's cheap, but it's not the it's not the best way to live if you're going to prevent heart disease. Um, so it speaks to broader socioeconomic problems, uh, you know, worldwide, frankly. I'm Dr. Ajay Kirthne, a interventional cardiologist and professor of medicine at Columbia University Medical Center, also an affiliated physician for the Cardiovascular Research Foundation. But I think educational moments like, for instance, this, it are, are ways to get the word out there. Um, and it's not just chest pressure. It may be, for some people, um, you know, indigestion that they have when they exercise. It may be just this vague fatigue type symptoms. This feeling of chest pressure, like the elephant sitting in your chest, that comes from a study, a cohort of patients of like, you know, white dudes from Framingham, Massachusetts. If you have diabetes, you might not have any symptoms. If you're a woman, you might not have them. And if you don't speak English, you might not express it as chest pressure. So I think all those things come to bear. And the more education that we can do just to sort of say, look, get yourself checked out is important. Um, The final thing I'll just make really quickly is that I can't tell you how many people I see who are brought in by their spouse. You know, they've been complaining of indigestion, et cetera, but they kind of just write it off. It's stress. It's whatever. The spouse brings them in and then, you know, you find, you know, a lot of disease. So um, family members can help, too. Doctor, I have a question for you. You were talking about, and this has been something that's been mentioned by a few of the clinical experts we've talked to for this series, that obviously the technology has improved so much, like the first stent procedure in the United States happened in like the late 70s and now to the point that Fitz can go in, have it done and leave the hospital the same day. I'm curious, how has it gone from your your first days of dealing with patients that live with heart disease to what it is now? I can imagine it's been one of those things where they're able to go back to their life in a sense that maybe they weren't able to 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, so great question. And I'll give you even more historical perspective. You know, I'm obviously a, an Indian guy. And so my dad has to be a doctor, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so he is and uh, he's retired. But when he did cardiology fellowship, he actually came in during my fellowship one time in the hospital watching us do a heart attack procedure. He wanted to come in. He literally came in at two in the morning. Um, bless him. And he was like, he was like a kid that we just had just been, you know, taken to Disneyland, not because of, you know, all the bells and whistles, but mainly because he said when these people had heart attacks and I was a fellow, we would put them in the hospital and just do bed rest and we couldn't do anything else. Um, and so fast forward that obviously many years, but it's really remarkable what we've been able to do. And it's not just the treatment part, it's also the diagnosis part. 
Um, so the fact that you don't have to wait to have a heart attack, for a patient to have a heart attack to treat them, but you can diagnose this uh, earlier on with high reliability and fidelity, and then come up with the treatment plan that the patient needs. Um, those are really the most remarkable things. The, the technology component of doing an angioplasty to think that you can, from an artery in the wrist, manipulate a wire that is just you know millimeters thick, like a millimeter thick, steer it through heart arteries while you're looking at a video screen of what's going on, and then safely implant the stent to open up the blockage as a way of avoiding a surgery um, is mind-blowing if you say it that way, but it's something that has become passe. It's something we do routinely, um, which is why you know I think uh, it's pretty cool to do what I get to do. Technology and advancements in cardiovascular treatment are incredible that we can look at cardiovascular disease from that place of treatment also when in fact we can't do it on our own. Uh, so in the big picture, I'm optimistic for the person living with heart disease. I did want to go with that last thing you brought up in terms of the innovations and advancements in medical technology, because I feel like people talk about that all the time in various disease states. Obviously with cardiology, you know, what we have at our our disposal today is not what we had 20 years ago, not what we had 40 years ago. From your perspective, what have been some of those biggest advancements in terms of being able to give patients that chance, like you said, to take life into their own hands and not look at heart disease as a death sentence, if you will? So I'm going to answer that conversation from the place of prevention to the place of treatment, because I think one of the most innovative things that have happened is we can actually early, early detect heart disease before it manifests. And that in itself hasn't been something we've been able to do. We can pick up endothelial dysfunction and microvascular disease, which is the first stage of heart disease. We can now look inside the arteries and figure out what kind of plaque is in there. We can never do that before. As you get older into your mid-30s and into your 40s, um, we have what's called a coronary calcium score, which is a coronary CT scan, which is a non-invasive way of just seeing if you have coronary calcifications in your arteries. If you do have that, that is already a precursor that you've developed um, some form of plaque in the arteries. And that can indicate that maybe you need to go on a cholesterol medication. Maybe you need to start worrying about your blood pressure a little bit more. Um, things like that to look into. My name is Bro Focalari. I'm an interventional cardiologist. Uh, I practice in Chicago, Illinois. There are ways of kind of looking into it, but I think the first barrier is just getting people in to see the physicians from the beginning. We have technology today using AI and whatever other things are out there that almost seemed impossible 20, 30, 40 years ago. But I think the issue that we face now as a nation is like access. You know, we can have the best technology, but will everyone be able to get it if they need it? We have to change the story from the treatment driven strategy to the preventive strategy. Because of COVID, there's more receptiveness around this. We have to change how we're dealing with things because the burden of healthcare is so enormous that if we don't become a preventive driven society, this treatment driven is not working at all. Yeah, I think for me, the number one thing is early detection. Um, the reason it is the number one mortality risk is because we aren't detecting this early enough and we're 
always finding patients that are coming in with this problem later on at the point where we, we can help them, but it might also be too late. And then uh, to be able to get in touch with more patients at an earlier age. So I've, if we could come up with a way that, you know, all patients in their 20s and 30s at least are encouraged to go see a, a family physician um, to get blood work drawn, to start checking their blood pressure, to go over their risk factors, um, and to start making those lifestyle changes at an earlier age will hopefully prevent the, you know, rise or the, you know, this increase in heart attacks down the road. Um, but if we continue the way we're doing things now, where we're always reacting to it, uh, we're never really going to change that curve. It'll always just be uh, the number one thing because we're not really affecting the underlying issue. And by the time we get to affect it, it's already been too late. What happens if we pick up disease so early that we can actually reverse it before it manifests? Value-based care is really about managing those risk factors early, preventing heart disease early, diagnosing it before it develops. I believe our focus needs to be in those early, early stages of prevention. And quite frankly, when you think about 80% of the time we can prevent heart disease, I think we can actually increase that statistic to 90%. If we can prevent heart disease 90% of the time, think about that. Think about the ripple effect on what we spend on healthcare. Think about the lives saved. That would change everything for human beings across the world and the healthcare system. I always used to say it's heart month, like, but what's gonna happen like March 1st? <laughs> you know? What we, we all start like going nuts and eating whatever we want, you know, and I think what you're bringing up is the most relevant story, which is, you know, how do we make people connect to this in a way that it's going to matter to them? And I think it's really, you know, Bill, telling your story, just telling your story. I promise you there are people listening who are going to be like, wait, what, what, why did that happen? And so the awareness has to be for everyone, get checked, know your numbers. That's something we say through the American Heart Association. Know if you have high blood pressure. Guess what? That matters. Know your family history. Have a conversation with your family. What's our risks? Check in with your doctor. Great. Have a good heart month. Donate, support, wear red, all of it. But tell the stories. Keep telling your friends. Tell the stories. You tell four people. Let them each tell four people and let the narrative go on. What is your sense for the future? Because we have kind of looked at the past. We've recounted your own past in the greater context of things. Honestly, I'm kind of mixed. I'm hoping that people can advocate for themselves. Like Dr. Steinbaum said, keep making those calls, keep pushing. I don't feel good. I don't feel good. But I'm kind of concerned that most of these decisions on preventative care or any care, really, just like when my cardiologist wanted me to get a nuclear stress test and it got declined from insurance. I think there's a little too much power in the hands of insurance companies. And I think we're, as patients, going to be fighting 
for ourselves, for our health, along with our doctors, in order to get the care that we need. Which is a shame, because it's a fight that we really shouldn't have to be fighting. We should be able to get the care we need without having it get declined. Or, like you, without having a lapse in your healthcare coverage so you get billed thousands of dollars. And on the other hand, it took me a long time to be able to even get a cardiologist appointment. I can't imagine what that's like for people across our country. There's a lot of things that just don't seem like they're in order that I think really need to be made a little bit more easier for patients. That's what the immediate future looks like. So just keep moving forward. Listen to your body and be your own advocate. On behalf of MM&M and Cardiology Advisor, a Haymarket Media publication, we'd like to thank you for listening to me and my heart. I'd like to thank all of the experts for contributing their insights to this series as well. This series was co-produced by Bill Fitzpatrick and Jack O'Brien. This marks MM&M's first foray into long-form audio storytelling, but it won't be our last. If you have any suggestions for topics for us to cover in future series, any feedback on me and my heart, or patient stories that you want to share with us, feel free to do so at news at haymarketmedia.com.